It is indeed good to see you all here this morning as we begin this new series, The Good Book. And so this eight-Sunday, 40-day adventure will take us through the most significant themes of the Bible and will help us, I think, catch a bird's-eye view of God's plan of history throughout the ages. The first week's theme begins where you would expect it to begin, in the beginning. It's an exploration of the book of Genesis. And, you know, I think the whole story of God's plan for the ages is encapsulated in the book of Genesis. God's perfect plan in creation, thwarted by evil and sin, but ultimately overcomes by God's grace. You see, God's plan is greater than humanity's rebellion and brokenness because God's grace is greater than anything else. So here, here's what I'd like you to do this week. As you read through these chapters, there will be five of them, or you can just read through the whole book of Genesis if you want to. But in your readings, will you look for, highlight, make a list of all the times you see the grace of God coming forth out of the book of Genesis? I think you'll be surprised that even early on, the grace of God is the dominant theme of Scripture. And since I'm preaching this morning, I get to pick my favorite passage out of Genesis. That's just the way it works. And so here we go. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 because I love this story. I love this character because of the inspiration that it brings to us. Genesis 5, or chapter 6 verse 5 begins with a, with a sad story. <clears throat> The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now, I've preached about Noah and the Genesis flood a few times during my ministry, and we've talked about the feasibility of all of these things. So let me just take a moment or two and remind you of some of the truths that we've explored in the past. Studies reveal that the size of the boat and the dimensions of the boat that we call Noah's Ark are very stable in water, nearly impossible to capsize, and basically have been used as the proportions of large sea-going vessels even today. And you say, well, how big was the Ark? Well, let me see if I can give you a perspective this morning. The Bible uses cubits as a tool of measurement, but, but they've kind of fallen out of favor in the last several hundred years, if you hadn't noticed. The metric system of measurement was first introduced by the French in 1799. In 1824, the British officially adopted the imperial system of weights and measures. The U.S. customary system about the same time which is similar to the imperial system was adopted by our nation, was embraced over the metric system. Do you know why? Because the metric system was viewed as atheistic since it grew out of the French Revolution. So we opted for the U.S. customary, which is similar to the imperial kind of measurements. 
And so since we have people from all different cultures who use all different kinds of measuring systems, we thought a few years ago it would be good if we kind of developed our own equal measuring system. And so we developed the Phillips scale based on our tallest staff member. So since Alan is about 6'4", and Alan equals six feet four inches. So that means in reference to the ark, it's three stories, 45 feet high, or 7.1 Allens. <laughs> it is 75 feet wide, which is about the width of this auditorium, or 11.8 Allens. And it's 450 feet long, a football field and a half, or 71.1 Allens. Now, I hope that brings a sense of unity and, and scope to you that you can understand the size of the ark. So if you see Alan this morning, give him a pat on the back and thank him for his help in us being able to categorize the ark. We've also talked about the feasibility of the ark holding the animals. Now, you know, that this, this massive boat and, and all the animals, people think, oh, but you couldn't have put all of the animals on the ark. Well, first of all, if you take out all the animals, the creatures that are in the seas, uh, which by the way is the majority of creatures. The list contains then of land animals and birds, about 35,000 animal species, or roughly 70 since they came two by two. The average size of most land animals is less than that of a sheep, and since 240 sheep fit comfortably into an average size double-decker railroad car, and since the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such railroad cars, calculations show that the animals to be saved would have fit into approximately 50% of the ark's capacity. Thus, the remaining 50% of the ark's capacity would have been occupied by people, food, water, and other necessities for the journey. Regardless <clears throat> of... Um, the creatures that were on the, the ark, some people say, well, yeah, but what about the big ones? You know, elephants and <clears throat> rhinos and hippos and that kind of thing. Well, the Bible doesn't say that they were mature or adult. As a matter of fact, if God is going to use these animals to recreate the world after the flood, it would have been better to start with the young ones, a young pair. And so these might have been more adolescent or, or young pairs. Or the fierce ones, like bears and tigers, lions and such, may have been well-caged, or God may have put them into a state of hibernation, much like bears do during the wintertime. <clears throat> there were also seven of every clean animal on the ark. Some of those may have been used for food. Some of those may have been used for sacrifice after the ark landed following the flood. And then when you, when you consider all the animals coming, the question always comes up, how could Noah have gathered all of these animals? <clears throat> well, he didn't. God did. God supernaturally brought them. Oh, come on. Do I really believe that? Yeah, I do. If you struggle with that, if you have a problem with God bringing the animals to Noah, then would you please explain to me the power of the brain? I, I like what Emerson Pugh, researcher at IBM, said. He said, if the human brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. <laughs> Pretty good analogy. You see, our computers provide vast information at the click of a mouse, but even the most powerful computers cannot begin to match the intelligence of the brain. Research reveals that the brain of a honeybee 
can accomplish the same thing as computer mapping programs. You know, you type in the coordinates of where you want to go, and the computer will give you the shortest or quickest route to your destination. A honeybee, after making multiple stops to collect nectar, can not only compute the shortest, but also the most energy-efficient route back to the hive. And she does it on the fly. After returning to the hive, she will go through a series of twists and waggles to communicate to the other bees at the hive the distance and the direction to the flowers that she has discovered. All of that with a brain the size of a grass seed. So if God can give a honeybee the capacity to make it back to the hive and teach others a new flight pattern, then don't you think God could have directed the animals to the ark for this incredible moment in time? Do I really believe that the story is true? Yes, I really believe the story is true. Some people say it is a children's story. Others say it's a Bible allegory to teach us biblical truth. But I believe that the story is real for lots of reasons. I, I think the evidence is, is really convincing. Uh, the current global population curve matches up very closely with the biblical timeline of the global flood. The shifting of tectonic plates and the continental drift theory all point to a global flood. Add to all of that the shifting topography of the world and I think it becomes very convincing. You see, if you could flatten out the mountains and if you could raise the ocean bed so that everything was level, there is enough water on the face of the earth right now to cover the globe 1.7 miles deep. Now, here's something to ponder. Why do we find most dinosaur bones at higher elevations or in mountain ranges? That's not where the dinosaurs lived. Or consider the fact that the top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest from 26,000 to 29,000 feet, is comprised of sedimentary rock packed with seashells and fossilized closed clams. Closed clam shells indicate that they were destroyed instantaneously in some cataclysmic manner, maybe like a global flood. So just how did the clam shells and seashells get to the top of the world's highest mountain? Unless, of course, there was some topographical shifting of the earth or a global flood that covered the world. But even all of that, folks, and that's enough to convince me, and there's so much more. If you just, you can dig yourself in, into so much research that's been done. But, but that aside, the most convincing proof to me is what the New Testament says about Noah. You see, the New Testament writers believed him to be a real figure. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. No mention of an allegory or a children's story. Noah is listed among other real people in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. But that's not all. In his first letter to the church, the apostle Peter uses Noah's obedience to God as an illustration of Christian baptism. In his second letter, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness who, along with his family, was saved and convicted the world when God destroyed it with the flood. That's in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he writes about the ancient flood as an illustration of what God's going to do at the end of time. God said, I'm no longer going to destroy the world with a flood. The next time it will be with fire. Peter mentions that in chapter 3. 
Luke's gospel includes Noah in the genealogy of Christ. Now, I don't know how you look at things like genealogy, but I don't think it really works well to have fictional characters in a genealogy. Just sort of messes up the whole family line. You know what I mean? And so God is including Noah in this line of Christ. But the most powerful evidence for me is found in the very words of Jesus himself, recorded in Luke 17 and Matthew 24. Let me read from Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, you know what history tells us? Noah and the day of his time will be similar to the time when the Son of Man will return. If Jesus believed the story to be true, that gives new importance for me. Here's why. You see, this is a house of cards if we're not careful. If Jesus tells the story as truth, but it's not true, then that means Jesus lied. If Jesus lied, he is disqualified from being our Savior. And we, of all people, are the most pitiful, foolish people there is. I choose to believe that because the Savior said it's true, that Noah was a real person, that the flood was a real flood. So we oftentimes get, when we look at the story, we we get kind of fascinated with all of these things and the feasibility of the evidence of it, and we miss, we miss in our study what I think is the key part of the story, and that is the person of Noah and the condition of the world. So let's take a look at those those things this morning for just just a few moments. First of all, let's take a look at the condition of the world, because you see, you've got to ask the question, why did this happen in the first place? Did you notice the description of the human heart? as spelled out in chapter 6, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time? Wow. I like the way the message translates it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 in the message. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. Pretty good description, isn't it? Now, I know things are bad today. I know our world's in a mess today. There are scary things out there, but it's not as bad as it was in the days of Noah. I know there are good people today. This room is full of good people today. People who I believe really do care about their neighbors. People who deep down inside really want to do what's right. That doesn't mean we don't have problems that are crying out for solutions in our cultures. And it doesn't mean that we always choose to do the right thing. It just means that we're, we're trying. But when I read the Genesis account, I don't find anybody trying. And, and it does mean this, folks. That when you see the world around us crumbling, it's nothing new. It's been this way since the beginning. The world has been and still is filled with evil from morning to night. So it would seem that God had two options back in Genesis chapter 5, to scrap the whole plan or to extend grace. After all, folks, he had made a promise to Eve in the garden. He said that her descendant would crush the power of evil, remember? So if God just destroyed it all, he would have broken his promise. And the Bible says God cannot break his word. 
So the question always comes up then, well, if God knew human beings would act this way, why did he create us to begin with? It's a pretty good question. One that's probably above my pay grade to answer, but I'll give you at least a glimpse. I mean, I cannot begin to fathom the mind of God, but I do know what the Bible tells us about God, and that is that God is love. And here's what love seeks. Genuine love seeks a relationship. And the Bible is clear that God is a relational God, that God is love. God could have created all of us as puppets that without choices, that we would be forced to do what we do as right, that we would have no choice in the matter, but but there would be no fulfillment of love if that were the case. For love to be fulfilled, for love to be genuine, there has to be a choice between right or wrong to choose or to reject. And so even though God may have known how this would have gone, he still wanted this relationship with us. Besides that, while I cannot grasp, and I doubt that you can either, all that God is doing here, this is one of those times when we need to let God be God. We cannot impose our finite understanding on an infinite Lord. I also find myself feeling today like my grandparents felt. My grandparents worried about me and my generation. Oh my goodness, what would the world be like when I grew up and became an adult and became a grandparent myself? How in the world would we get along? Well, they were right to be concerned. Much has changed since their day. Not all of it very good. But I'm here to tell you that faith still sustains us. Our faith is still real. It is still working. It is still life-changing. The church is still alive and vibrant. Now I find myself a grandparent, and I'm looking down the road at the apparent turbulent, stormy flood of stress and troubles that my grandchildren will face, and I'm worried about them and their generation and how it's going to happen and how they'll stay afloat in the days ahead. And then I'm reminded that God said his church, his church would be here to the end. So no matter how bad the world gets, the light of the gospel will still be sustaining lives. So what we need to do today is to make sure that what happens now prepares our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for the future so that if you could come back and get a glimpse of the church, it would be better and stronger years down the road than even what it is today. Which brings us then to the character of this man, Noah, who is the heartbeat of the story. When we read through the story, we get caught up with questions on the evidence of the flood or the feasibility of such an event, such a boat, and such a migration of animals that we completely overlook the most applicable part of the story, and that is the character of Noah and his family. Who was this guy, and how did he manage to remain godly when everything else around him was was morally and spiritually in decay? Well, let me share with you quickly as we wind up three characteristics, qualities of Noah that I think are indispensable to our own lives today. Here's the first one. Righteous. You say, oh, boy, that's, a, that's one of those churchy words. Really, it's not. It just means doing what is right. It's not a hard word to understand. It's just a hard word to do. Doing what is right. Just as sin is a choice, doing what is right is a choice. There's no magic or coercion to it. 
Some people aren't more gifted at doing what's right than other people. It's not easier for some to do the right thing than it is for others. It's basically a choice. We choose either to do the wrong thing or to do the right thing. And there are influences around us that will impact those choices. But the choice rests with us. So, simply put, righteous is choosing to do the right thing. But there's another side picture to this, and that is righteous is also being in a right relationship with God. Notice the the scripture says that Noah found favor, or he found grace with God. And it says he walked with God. Did you notice that phrase there in Genesis chapter 6 when we read the first time? He walked with God. I can only find that phrase, walked with God, three times in scripture. Twice in reference to Enoch, in the book of Genesis, who was such a godly man that God, he didn't die. God just took him home. He didn't experience an earthly death. Only one of two men in the scriptures to face that kind of thing. God just took him home. He walked with God. And the third reference is to Noah, that he walked with God. By the way, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. I look at Noah's sons who surely helped him build the ark, who went through this whole ordeal with him, who ended up on the ark. Never do we read that the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, got together and said, boy, this dementia issue with dad is really getting bad. This boat thing in the neighborhood, you know. They, Noah had done such a good job of communicating the faith. I think it had passed down from Enoch to Noah and to his sons. There, there was in the midst of all this moral crumbling in the world, this spiritual strain that held through. One cannot underestimate the importance of our spiritual heritage or our moral and spiritual legacy that we leave to our children and grandchildren. When God has a job to do, he doesn't look for the person who's gifted to do it. He looks for the person who is walking in a right relationship with him. Would righteous appear on your spiritual resume this morning. If not, now's a good time to make a change and start walking with God. Here's a second word that is used to describe Noah, and it is blameless. Now, if righteous focused on his relationship with the Lord, blameless focuses on his relationship with others. Blameless does not mean perfect, folks. It does not mean without sin. Blameless means that you have a good reputation. That in the eyes of his peers, Noah was above reproach. That Noah had integrity. In 2007, the I-35 bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota collapsed suddenly during rush hour, killing 13 people and injuring 145. The investigation revealed that the gusset plates that connected the girders together in the truss system were undersized, resulting in a structural flaw. Plus, the bridge was designed in the 1960s, and over the years, it gradually gained weight as workers installed concrete structures to separate the east and the westbound lanes and and more paving. All those kinds of things had added weight, straining the weak spots. Bottom line of the research and the report said the bridge lacked integrity. You see, a bridge has integrity when it does what it's designed to do without collapsing. People are the same. 
When we live and function spiritually, morally, and willfully according to the design that God has used to create us, we have integrity. When we stop living like God designed us, we lose our integrity. So every day, I think we need to do some soul searching about our own integrity. People's lives are collapsing all around us on a daily basis based on the added stress and weight of immoral and godless choices that weaken their ability to live as designed by God. People lose their integrity all the time. God has not called us to perfect living. He's called us to blameless living, a life of integrity, to live out his design for us. I'm telling you, peer pressure today sometimes strains the limits of our resolve. I know our teenagers are constantly under pressure these days, especially when others know about their Christian convictions and just the pressure they put on on our teens. You see, it's really hard when the world gangs up on you. But here, if Noah, if Noah could stay true to God in the midst of his world, then we can stay true to God in our world. Theologian and author of more than 50 books, Dr. R. John R. W. Stott, shared this last bit of wisdom. These were his last words to his assistant before he died in 2011. Do the hard thing. God did not call us to an easy life. God called us to a rewarding life when we follow him. And that means sometimes doing the hard thing. Think it was easy for Noah to put up with the ridicule? Think it was easy for Noah to build an ark? Think it was easy for Noah to convince his family that God had called him to do this? Do the hard thing. Stay true. Now, what strikes me about these first two characteristics is their relationship to an answer that Jesus gave to a question that was posed to him. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. In two words, righteous, blameless. You see, Noah was an example of the very thing that Jesus said was the greatest commandment in the world. Last thing, trusting. I see this matter in Noah of being able to trust God. No boat like this had ever been built. No flood like this had ever occurred. No zoo like this had ever been assembled. No global destruction like this had ever been observed. Add to the fact that Noah boarded the ark seven days before the rain began, and you can see the kind of trust that he had. Can you imagine the ridicule that he put up with all through the project, but especially moving into that boat seven days before the rain started in the middle of dry ground when the sun is shining up above, the hoots and the hollers of his neighbors must have been unbearable. On day six, they probably gathered around the ark and said, Noah, we don't know anybody that's as big a fool as you are. On day seven, nobody was laughing. Nobody was ridiculing. I stand amazed at the trust of a man who, when nothing else made sense, trusted God to do what God told him to do. The whole scenario almost sounds unbelievable until you realize that Jesus used this as the very example of how unbelievable it may seem that one would rise from the dead. 
that he would come again and that he would raise to life again all those who were his followers. Hasn't happened yet. Some people say, it's never going to happen. Same thing that people were saying to Noah at the ark, never going to happen. But it did, and it will. I don't do well with what I cannot see. I think we tend to be more skeptical today than, than in times past. Uh, why is she being nice to me? What does she want from me? What's this act of kindness going to cost me? There's, there's something, no, there's no free lunch in this world. We've all been told if it seems too good to be true, it probably isn't. And this seems to be too good to be true. I think trust today is hard to come by. When we have to sign reams of paper to protect ourselves legally, it's hard to trust. When a promised service isn't delivered, it's hard to trust. When the rhetoric of people we're supposed to believe is filled with hollow and empty promises, it's hard to trust. Can I ask you a question this morning? Have any of you ever had a sandwich at a fast food restaurant that looked like the sandwich in the commercial on TV? It's hard to trust. I do know this. Our God is a God of grace, and trusting him will always be the smartest thing that you'll ever do. If you don't believe me, someday you can ask Noah. Because he's the one that I think is the greatest example in the book of Genesis of trust. He and Abraham show us what it means to follow at the feet of the God when everything around us just seems polar opposite. So when troubling times come, when the bottom falls out of your life, when the world around you is crumbling and you want to keep floating, don't give up, don't give in, stand your ground, be righteous, blameless, trusting. That's what separates us from the rest of the world. This past Wednesday marked the 22nd anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Do you know what is the most sacred symbol in that city? It is a sprawling, shade-bearing, 80-year-old American elm tree that the city treasures because not of its appearance, but its endurance. It's called the survivor tree. Timothy McVeigh parked his death-laden truck only yards from it. His malice killed 168 people, wounded 850 others, destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, and buried the tree in the rubble. No one expected the tree to survive, but it did. New life soon began to emerge. Buds began to pop from torn, shattered branches. Today, the tree sits in the very center of the memorial called Circle of Survivors. God calls us to such tenacity, to be survivors in a world that is crumbling around us. Trust him to keep you afloat in the tough times.